everyone. Hi, Philip. Hi. Hello. How you all doing? Yeah, it's good. It's yeah. the middle of the day. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. It's very sunny and hot. <laughs> yes. It's In the Dubai. summer is coming. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and not bad. It's it's what 25th of May today and it's no, reasonably no. It's 29th of May. See, this is how I feel <laughs> that it's still good weather. It's only 35 degrees or 36 yes. only. Only. Yeah. And no. it's almost middle of summer. Yeah. It doesn't feel like Is it is it lunchtime already? It is. Are, Are you, you thinking of food? Yeah. 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 All right. I, I'm definitely thinking about what I ate yesterday. What did you eat? I was at my mom's place. We make crepes out of uh, this lentil mix. So I love that. Reminds Wait, me of my what's, childhood. What's the word for it in your language? So it's called it's called pudla. No way. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. But you will never find it in any restaurant outside. It's something like a very traditional recipe. Does your mom take delivery orders? <laughs> yeah, oh, for you guys, anytime. Right. Anytime for you guys. All yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just uh, I was just going to say how it's it just connects to what we're going to talk today about yeah. food. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to talk about sustainable food production and consumption. Yes. Very interesting topic, which most people don't know much about because. When we go shop in a grocery or supermarkets, we don't really know much about where a majority of the food is coming from, except for maybe you'll know some countries. Mm, um, the label. The labels yeah. and some, whether it's organic or not, some yeah. basic things like that. It might have an organic logo price. on it. Yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> and the price. Yeah. And the price. And you're or, on the way. <laughs> and nowadays we see some more, some more labels, some more... Yeah. words like aquaponically grown you know so i i don't think many people know about what these things yeah. mean and what does it say about the food right right so today we're going to break that down for you we're All gonna right. we're gonna talk about agriculture how we grow food and this is an industry that's been there for ten thousand years or even more and it has changed drastically over the only the last hundred years mm. or so yeah, I mean, most most of our history, people used to settle next to riverbanks, to agriculture, the way their forefathers did, and it continued. But I think in the last 50 to 100 years, it, it's moving and changing innovations coming in so quickly. It, and it, you can see every other mm -hmm. month or every these days, every other mm -hmm. day, something new coming up with, yeah. within agriculture. And also people are traveling more. So since the middle of last of the last century air travel has picked up has grown to a considerable scale so that people are migrating bringing um, no new technologies yeah. new tourism ideas. has grown so when you travel to a new country it, normally you would experience the food in that country now you kind of expect a starbucks there because <laughs> you know you're rushing to uh, go somewhere and you need that starbucks or you got lunch, so you go for that McDonald's there, right? And you've gotten so used to the yes. taste of Starbucks, you're not really open to experimenting. Yeah, so McDonald's coffee. has to taste the same if yeah. you're in the UAE or... But it doesn't. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't, huh? Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Well, okay. And coffee is the whole uh, topic that we can have a whole conversation on, especially when it comes to sustainability and the taste mm -hmm. that you can get. I mean, once you start, it's like wine tasting, right? I mean, you can have a whole array of... 
things. Okay, that's for another sorry, yeah. Vipa. That's for another day. Oh, we should have a we show digress. On call. Yes. <laughs> yes. Today, Vipa is going to explore and take us through everything that is to do with sustainable farming, the future of farming, and all the new innovations that's coming up. So it's it's quite exciting. Yeah. So I wanted to start with talking about this number that we see, and that is kind of the limelight. Mm-hmm. of all discussions that happen when it comes to farming. And the, th- that is the fact that by 2050, we will have to feed almost 10 billion people. I'm, I'm glad I'm not feeding them. <laughs> <laughs> and this number is so big yeah. that it, it is scary, right? Mm-hmm. And what generally happens is that the leaders in most countries, the lobbyists for industrial farming and those kinds of methods of farming will generally throw this number in your face and they'll be like, how will you do this? But it is super scary. Then you almost think Mm -hmm. like, oh, maybe the whole world is going to... To end. Yeah, I mean, there's no food available. Mm. The thing is, this kind of talk has been there in the past as well, right? Even even hundreds of years ago, there were scientists who claimed that by the 21st century, we will all be starving. We will Mm. all be dying of hunger. Thomas Malthus. Yes. Thomas Malthus, after whom we have the Malthusian principle, claimed that the population is going to grow upwards till we run out of space for farming and run out of food and water and land. So it's going to be a disaster. By when right. did he say? Well, I don't remember the dates that he predicted, but he was writing in around 1830s. Mm-hmm. But what he did not take into account was human ingenuity. And so this was during the Industrial Revolution, and a lot of innovation was happening. And uh, so technology beat the forecasts of the pessimistic forecasters. And so we were able to produce much more food and using less land and less resources. So the efficiency was greatly improved. But all of those problems that you mentioned, right, the the fact that we're going to be limited by the amount of land we have, Mm -hmm. the resources we have, like water, they are all issues that we do have to deal with. We still have to deal with them. But in fact, it created another problem. We now are able to produce more food than population requires. And in fact, we will be able to produce more food than in 2050. And that the, the new problem is wastage of food. About 30 to 50% of food that is created you know, at the source, let's say wheat or bananas, is, is wasted. So are you kind of telling that we are currently making enough food to feed the entire population of the world? Presently, yeah, more than enough. But, but there are still 850 million people, or there, about, who, who go hungry every night. Exactly. So there is a, that mismatch, right? A yes. Paradox. So there is a huge gap mm-hmm. from where we have enough food to do that food reaching the people. So mm-hmm. what's the gap? So there's a lot of waste. Mm-hmm. So we need methods so that we can connect those people who are lacking to where there is an excess and surplus of food. Right. So this is why I was very pleased to interview... Mr. Daniel Solomon. So he is using technology to connect people with ugly food. Yes. Food that would have been wasted. Now he's able to connect that with the people who would want to use it. And that's one way of using innovation to bring in technology to bear on connecting and networking. That's part of the solution is to network. Right. So some of the problems that, that we do face when it comes to 
to agriculture is that because of the issues that we have created, some of them are man-made, mm -hmm. right? We have a lot of unpredictable weather and that is causing farmers a lot of issues in terms of harvest being lost because of floods, because of rains not happening at the time when they are expected or too much rain happening and completely eroding the soil at the wrong times. So, so we definitely have a lot of issues that we're going to have to tackle over the next 10, 20 years. But the good thing is, and we will come to that, is there are a lot of solutions mm -hmm. already underway. Yeah. There's a lot of experimenting happening from which we're learning about all the mistakes we've made in the past. That's true. So we, we can look back in history and the Romans, more than 2,000 something years ago, were building aqueducts. These were open water channels. And many parts of the world, even here in the Middle East, uh, the ancestors of, well, the people in, in the Middle East were creating underground channels, bring water from the rivers or oases to the farm. And so we do have technologies that we've been using for hundreds of years to network the water with the food production, with the agriculture. And now we have way more technology and knowledge. And data. And data. Um, that's, I think in today's times, that's the asset that we have, which our forefathers didn't have. So it's great we, we had many innovations in the past. But when you have data, we have comparisons and we can see where we need specifically improvements. And that makes innovation and change happen much faster because now we know where where we need to improve so we are living in great times of course there mm -hmm. are challenges but those challenges have much i won't say when i say easy it would sound wrong but it has much you can find solutions mm -hmm. much easier than yes. in the past so now we have access to data at our fingertips so you can just Google for data, which can also lead to lots of error, <laughs> monumental <laughs> yeah. errors. Confirmation bias. Yes, confirmation biases. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, extremely. I mean, prevalent. if uh, like like today, uh, the, one of the biggest problems that we we have is soil degradation. We spoke about it in our last episode as well. Because we have data, it's so easy to look into the soil, see what's required, and how we can manage it naturally. Mm -hmm or artificially or in combination it is much much the solutions are much easier to reach so than in the past where you probably have so soil degradation but you do not know where to start have you seen that app where if you have indoor plants you can take the app closer to the plant and it will read what uh, what the what plant is it yes what are the problems it's having yeah. and what you need to do to make it healthier so it yeah. can oh, or it needs it. some milk it needs some honey <laughs> <laughs> but think of wow. it for a second yeah. it's data right. amazing machine learning yeah and, and it's only getting better right yeah it is getting machine i mean machines yeah. are constantly learning yeah. uh, people behind the machines are learning so yeah now we have these apps and tools at our fingertips that can help us yeah so so when it comes to data i wanted to start talking about organic farming versus mm -hmm. also industrial farming because this is something that most people hear about a lot it's there in the news we see it in the supermarkets a lot as well but there is a lot of misinformation there is a lot of myths that are floating about and uh, i think what we can do is kind of go into some of those so i looked at data when it comes to organic farming because I wanted conclusive results about whether one is better than the other. I expected 
to see something that would say that, yes, organic farming is way better than industrial farming. It's the future. It's the way to go. And you will see some of these articles also, which state th these things. However, a lot of the studies that have been done in the scientific journals are actually inconclusive. Mm -hmm. They're not able to really understand or figure out whether the environmental impact, which is, I think, now more important, is lesser when it comes to organic farming compared to the industrial farming. But how about the effects on human body? So um, the nutrients yeah. and the taste. Uh, also the, the, the kind of chemicals. So obviously uh, most of the time when, when we, as a layman, when you go into a supermarket, the reason why you would choose organic produce, where you also spend a considerable large amount of money, is to, to avoid pesticides or whatever chemicals that has gone into the other produce. Isn't that what has been told? It's been advertised. So is that not true? Is that not why we're paying extra? <laughs> so, so that's the reason organic farming definitely started because people wanted produce that is healthier, that is more Cleaner. nutritious. Maybe they expected things to be tastier because initially when my parents started buying organic, they thought that, oh, this will be juicier, this will be tastier, this will taste like the food that used to taste in the olden days. And was it? No. Was it? <laughs> it was not. And, and, and they were a bit disappointed because they were like, I expected things to be tasting better, but it didn't. So one of the myths is that organic farms are not allowed to use pesticides. Actually, they are allowed to use pesticides. The rules and regulations in different countries, different regions are different based on how much is allowed, what is allowed. Oh. Sometimes it even goes as far as in some regions, more pesticide is allowed than industrial farming in other regions. Wow. Even. Yeah. yeah that so is a complete revelation for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I thought organic farming, if they try to use pest control, that would be an organic way of controlling pests mm -hmm. by adding some flora or fauna that controls pests mm -hmm. or some organic material yeah. to, to, to control pests. And hence, it's more expensive to grow organic. I mean, that was my understanding. Pesticides are used as a last resort in organic farming. But there are still farms who use them, you know, because it's, it is allowed by the regulations. Okay. So, so these I, I are, can I ask a question here? So these are not organic pesticides like neem tree oil or something. No. You're saying these are chemical, yes. uh, chemical. inorganic pesticides. Absolutely, yes. Hmm. Let me speculate a little bit. And the thing is that the purposes that these both ways or methods of farming exist are different. So industrial farming kind of came out because um, it came into practice because we needed cheap food and we needed it fast because the population was growing. There was the baby boomer stage. Wars had ended and we had this many people to feed. And initially it was just easier. Till your soil, put more fertilizer, you will start getting a lot of yield. So it was a huge success initially. We didn't know about the effects that was going to cause or the harm it was going to cause eventually to the environment, to humans. To the soil. To the soil. And when it comes to organic farming, the purpose at this point is to feed the people who can actually only afford it. So, so organic farming produce at this point is not affordable by can, everyone. Let me ask you a question there. Before industrial farming came about wasn't all farming organic yes you could look at it that way 
However, nowadays you have to be certified organic farm. So there are certain rules and regulations that you will follow, like you cannot use GMO, you cannot use a lot of different types of pesticides. You're supposed to have a diversity in the crops that you're growing instead of having a monoculture. That is something that is followed by industrial farming. So there are certain rules that you can follow. I think before industrial farming came about, farming was organic in that we didn't have access to all of these chemicals that were being used. And, and the, the whole purpose and the knowledge and the whole purpose was not to simply increase the yield no matter at what cost. So in other words, organic farming, it's just high-tech traditional farming. It's, I would it's... say it is natural. This actually, I'll take you back to one of our conversations with one of the farmers here in the UAE. Uh, remember what he was telling about local natural pesticides. So they are not allowed to use that, which is natural and locally found because it's not in the regulation book. It's not certified. By so now you're going out. Yeah. So now you're going out to get that certification. You need to use the agencies that says, okay, these things are only certified. So now you have to go and buy those things. So in traditional ways, people were taking out what's available to them naturally, using it in their ecosystem to create whatever food they can create. The only bad thing was, not bad, I would say, but the drawback was the yield was not enough. So in a desert, they were only having certain kind of things. But today, I mean, if you look at some of the farms out here, they have so many, I mean, they grow wheat in the desert, mm -hmm. right? Didn't we hear that? So I think you were referring to Mr. Humaid al-Rumaiti of farm to table. Yes. So what you're saying is that now when you use an organic fertilizer or pesticide, you have to go get it certified, which takes a lot of testing and, and so on. And or that or use their certified, so there would be certain brands that's already in their list and you have to go in. So that increases that. the cost. cost. So that's why organic is expensive. Absolutely. Because of all the certifications that you're going to have to get and within those certifications you're allowed to use certain types of products certain types of seeds which kind of does limit you in terms of what you want to do and that's what I meant when I said that it is only done to target people who can afford this produce at this point organic farming is not being done with the intention that we will have 10 billion people to feed in the future so how do we make our methods more efficient. efficient, more friendly to the environment. These are some things that are an afterthought. Can so, we say they do not, they cannot reach that, even if they have the intent to reach yeah. the wider audience, they cannot simply because the cost is so high that they cannot sustain it. Yeah, so organic farming is not to be confused with regenerative farming, which we will come to and talk about later. But I, I did want to highlight some of the pros of organic farming, and that is the fact that, and most studies confirm this fact, that they are more resilient compared to the other types of farms. Like when in times of drought, their soil will be able to hold more moisture, they will be able to use, they will still be able to grow with less amount of water. So these farms are definitely more resilient because there is some focus on building healthy soil. Which, which is the foundation 
of having a good ecosystem of how about pests and diseases plant diseases so because they are not also allowed to use a lot of pesticides which are used generally studies do say that they tend to have a lot more waste and their yield tends to be lesser as well but again all of this information as i mentioned is quite conflicting mm. so with organic farming are they having a diversity of crops because having a monoculture has the negative security problem in that uh, if there's a plant disease or a pest it affects all of them but in industrial farming they would counter that with medications or pesticides and treat it and then keep their yield up in in high quantities so generally when it comes to organic farming what is required is that you use organic seeds that are locally adapted varieties you use measures to improve the soil fertility so you do things like crop rotation you use organic fertilizer and you you control the erosion levels in the soil and pest and weed control is only allowed through mechanical or other biological measures and when it comes to animals because farming also includes the animals right so animal you need to use animal housing that allows for natural behavior there's natural light there's sufficient room for them to move around to graze you use organic fodder to feed them you you have access to pasture and outdoor areas for the animals and what is prohibited and all of these things are done in industrial farming is is use of synthetic fertilizer use of chemical pesticides use of gmos genetically modified organisms and use of sewage sludge and within animal farming you you're allowed to use growth hormones and the use of antibiotics on animals right so there is a difference between these however these are some generic rules that people should follow there might be some differences on exactly how much and what is allowed in by different regions by different depending countries depending on where you are where you are right so that is the difference between the two so we did talk about the fact that there is a lot of conflicting studies when it comes to the data on organic farming however i did find this study from the rodale institute which is the longest running study they've been running this study since 1981 to wow. compare the yields the environmental impact uh, between organic farming versus industrial farming and what they say is that most of the studies that are being conducted are inconclusive because they've not been running for a long enough period when it comes to organic farming the results start to show after you've been doing it for 5 years because it takes the soil that long to to be revived to become healthier to become a living thing full of organisms that we need the good organisms that we need and their study shows a lot of positives about organic farming so rodale is a 501c3 corporation institute for research in new york city and their study shows a lot of positives for organic farming so they say that the organic yields are competitive with conventional yields after a 5 year transition period they produce up to 40% higher 
during times of drought. They also don't leach any toxic chemicals into waterways. They use 45% less energy, 40% fewer greenhouse emissions, and organic farmers earn three to six times more profit compared to other farmers. So this study does kind of tell you that it is the way for the future and that it can feed 10 billion people if we adopted the practices that are under organic farming. They do, however, say that the research is limited only to where the trial is currently has been conducted, which is in Pennsylvania, and the climate conditions and all of that is reflective of that. It will not be the same in every part of the world where the climate is different, the soil is different, but they are expanding their research and replicating these trials in other regions as well. So I think a study that also talks about its own limitations and is very transparent would be something that you can trust. But if you want to read more about it, go to rodaleinstitute.org and you'll find much more details about the study. It is a very positive development in, in, in terms of understanding because most, most studies that you look at says, okay, organic farming is, is limited. You cannot get as much yield as industrial farming. Also, what, what the target is and the amount of time organic farming takes to become sustainable in the right. sense rotational. So this is very positive. But what is actually interesting, and I, I just wanted to mention this fact, is that currently only 1 to 1.5% of agricultural land is under organic farms. It's still actually quite small. So modern organic farming is a more holistic way of looking at farming. So in that sense, I feel very optimistic about it because industrial farming was more a reductionist or atomistic view of farming. So with more data, more science, more research, it can only get better. Definitely. And on the opposite end, I wanted to also mention some of the cons of industrial farming that we already know, and some of that on the environment is that it produces a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. At least 25% of the pollution that we see is coming from the greenhouse gas emissions from the agriculture, which is equivalent to all transportation that is currently being used in the world. So you're talking about the tractors and machinery on the farm or the trucks that transport the produce? Yes, that and the fact that industrialized farming is done in silos in many places. So you might not have the animal fodder, you might not have a holistic production environment that kind of cuts out all of these emissions. So you're actually transporting the raw material first and then the produce as well mm. is being transported. So even for organic, farming we have to transport the goods the produce so well, there I is thought it's done organically on a bullock or something <laughs> right <laughs> on, on the horse. go okay. <laughs> um, horses so we won't be able to cut out entirely that absolutely um, absolutely and that that's why that's why many studies are conflicting in that the greenhouse gas emissions from organic farming are similar Hmm. to industrial farming because the energy use right. is still there. So also, plants breathe in carbon dioxide and oxygen during the day, but during the night, they do breathe out CO2 just like the rest of us. And also, the land itself does produce methane and biogas. It releases these greenhouse gases, just like animals and people do also. So farming, agriculture in general, and, and also forests, 
and marshes and so on. They also produce greenhouse gases. But plants are able to get rid of the CO2 during the day. So this is so conflicting, right? Because if there are research that's saying that agriculture is is one of the most polluting elements in the or in industry or sector in the world what does that even mean then i mean so what are you comparing it with we are then we are saying that okay then the forest is also giving out carbon dioxide so is human beings so i think what philip is talking about and this is something people can understand when they watch this documentary that you recommended to me kiss the ground mm-hmm. it's available on netflix it's a really nice documentary on soil and in that documentary they talk about tilling a lot so so tilling which is practiced widely in industrial farming it, even in the old days yeah mm-hmm. even in the old days but extensively now yeah. is a practice that is done after harvest to prepare the ground for next year's crops so you basically have a huge tractor that has sharp bottoms that kind of loosen up the dirt as it goes by on the whole ground so it's easier to plant seeds it's also a way to control weeds however when you till the ground you're actually killing all the organisms the living organisms that you need that the plants need to convert all the nutrients into viable sources you're actually killing all of them and once you start doing that the carbon that was sequestered in the soil starts releasing into mm-hmm. the air Okay. So instead of using agriculture as as a practice to sequester carbon into the soil, you're now releasing much more mm-hmm. into the air. As yeah. well as the hydrogen sulfide, the methane, the sulfur oxides, nitrogen oxides. I mean the way even animal farming is done, right? It's done in feedlots and animals are grouped tightly in one place they are overfed a lot of grains the amount of grain that is actually fed to these animals if that was given to humans we could feed 3.5 billion people according to studies so and the methane that is released when they digest their food in terms of burps and farts <laughs> poor cows they cannot fart in peace i feel bad for them <laughs> <laughs> There's 10 other people or oh, not people another cows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so that there're like 1.1.5 billion cows in the world. I mean, there's just too many of them. And oh, we cannot complain about them. I mean, how about human parts? Uh, so, yeah. yeah. This, how many people are there on the planet? Earth? No, this, no. This podcast is only for mature audiences. <laughs> So, so Did I, I just say how many people are there on planet Earth? <laughs> there are seven billion people, but the thing is that the methane that is in our farts. Why are we talking about this? Comparatively, how did it get there? <laughs> it's important. I mean, we talk about poop and pee also. Yes. All of this is, yeah. is important to understand and talk about. About carbon emissions. Carbon emissions. <laughs> yes. Methane. But it was very interesting. So I went down this line. Path this path of research and then i was like i thought i had the same question but the thing is that human fart contains very very less methane compared to cows cows yeah. have four stomachs kind of so that is the amount of methane that they are releasing while digesting the food yeah but so all herbivores i mean the cut chewing ones have these four tummies you know and then they're called the ruminant mm-hmm. animals like the sheep and the goats mm. So they all release methane but also hydrogen sulfide, sulfur oxides and nitrogen oxides and, and 
ammonia. So there are these other greenhouse gases. And, and it adds CO2. up. Mm. It adds up. Mm. So everything so is contributing to greenhouse gases. All living things and even non-living things like volcanoes and there are methane under the water. So when, when we take an in-depth look um, and then we compare it with organic farming, of course, then there is less carbon emission because then the crop rotations are the reason how the ground gets tilted naturally. Yeah. You're not tilting it. Even even organic farms, some of them do tilling to a, less, to a less extent. Okay. It is only in regenerative agriculture where tilling is not allowed at all. It's not a practice. Now we are talking about regenerative agriculture. I have never heard that about that. What's that? How is that different from organic? Now, is that a third way of doing agriculture? So regenerative agriculture is a holistic way of creating an ecosystem where there is a symbiotic relationship between all the different organisms, living things, you including mm-hmm. as a human. So it just plays and tries to plays on and tries to create the same thing that happens in a natural environment, you know. So the soil is created more naturally with organic mulch. The plants used are more native, crop rotations. So regenerative agriculture has some basic principles that most regenerative farmers might follow. However, it is very different and different practices will be required in different parts of the world depending on how the climate is the soil is, the environment is. However, there are some basic principles that people do follow when it comes to regenerative agriculture. So some of the things you will do is you will minimize soil disturbance. So there is literally zero to low tillage in this practice. You will probably have cover crops and crop rotation. So that that means that in industrial farming, after the harvest is done, they leave the land open for tilling. However, in regenerative practices, they have cover crops, which means that at any point, the ground is never completely open and left to the environment. Because what might happen is if there's too much rain, it erodes the soil, erodes causes the a wash off all the nutrients. And, and what generally happens is that cover crops sometimes also help give back nutrients into the soil. So this is also a practice that is used in regenerative practice. Also, the cover crops promote the growth of the bacteria and the fungus, the community that is that part of the soil. Yeah. And they allow them to grow and to create nutrients, to regenerate the nutrients and enrich the soil. And, and so that's why if you remove the cover crops, those agents, the bacteria and the fungus, as well as the earthworms and other bugs in there, they're forced to leave or they die or they are eaten away by birds, for example. So the cover crops helps them to establish that community and and, uh, regenerate the soil with new nutrients. And then you mentioned no-tillage farming. So what happens to the cover crops, the no-tillage farming? So tilling is actually done post-harvest, as I mentioned to prepare the ground for planting seeds for next year's harvest. However, instead of tilling in regenerative farming, you would plant cover crops so that you maintain the the health of the soil. You don't expose it to the natural environments like wind, which will make the soil dry and then 
just carry the soil away, things like that. So, so the cover crops are an alternative to tillage that is used in regenerative farming. So when you start planting for the new season, you just directly plant the seeds on top of the cover crops? No. What do you do with the cover crops? So the cover crops grow for a specific amount of time, and then the seed planting time generally comes after a couple of months while your cover crops are done growing, and then you can go back to growing what was seasonal. So what what happens to those crops that are growing on the soil? Do we, I think they are, they, they are harvested and consumed. Maybe to feed uh, fodder to cattle, but I, I think they also just uh, bury them under. What I've seen is they bury them under the soil. Bury the cover crops under mm-hmm. the soil. And plant new seeds on top. So one of the things that they used to do in India in old days is with the cover crops, something called chana. Well, I'm not sure what is the English word for chana. It, it's a kind of chickpeas. It's not oh. really chickpeas. It's it's black, uh, wild chickpeas. People eat it. We, we still consume it back home. So they will grow it during the summer after the harvest is done for whatever, mustard or wheat or corn. Uh, once that harvest is done, then they will put these in grow these in their farms so when that's harvested those black chickpeas it's food for horses humans we consume it as well for summer dishes and the the plant itself it goes back in the ground so it's buried under it's buried under or burned as well i mean in old days they used to burn it as well and Mm -hmm. then it's 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 spread in the in the ground okay so that is so now the circular That's yeah. a circular economy. Yeah. So now, the, once they pull it out, the ground is ready for the a new um, sowing season for the new crop. And also something that they follow is seasonal, growing crops that are seasonal. So it won't be the same from month to month or even when it comes to the land that they're using. They'll keep switching things to make sure that there is rotation, crop rotation. So you mean happening. like a wheat farm is not always a wheat farm. A wheat farm, yeah. Yeah, because certain climates suit other crops much better. So if you are just growing wheat all year round, you probably have to help the ground, the plants much more with fertilizers than you would if it was a seasonal crop. And then another thing that is also something that is a principle within regenerative farming practices, managed grazing and then integrating the livestock within that ecosystem. So what generally happens in industrial farming, like I mentioned, they lock these animals in certain environments, they feed them grains, things like that. But here what is done is that they allow the animals to graze and they do not allow them to graze on one part of the land consistently because if they did that, they would eventually erode Mm -hmm. the soil. So the, the management is done in a way is that animals graze on one part of the land one week. They're moved on to the next part of the land so that the previous land is allowed some time to grow mm. back and to restore itself mm-hmm. before they come back maybe after a month mm. or two months. So this follows the, the natural method where animals graze and they move on to the next. new lands yeah. and then they come back. So I've seen that in some permaculture or regenerative farms, they let cows graze and then the cows move on to another part of the farm and then the chicken are brought in 
for a second session of grazing. So they stay for a few days and then they move on to where the cows are presently at. And the, the cows move on to a new section and so on. And so they cycle these animals. Yeah. I mean, it's very meticulous in that mm -hmm. farmers have to follow. They have to section the land and then they have to follow exactly a, a timetable mm -hmm. for, the, for the animals to graze. But it works and it helps. Yeah. And um, once you get the system in place, yeah. then they just follow. Then it's easier. It's routine. Yes. yes. Another principle is composting. So making sure that any food waste is composted because eventually that is going to enrich the soil that they have. And lastly, they do want to increase biodiversity. So even things like planting trees, planting flowers, having an ecosystem for insects, birds, bees. So you're just making sure that this ecosystem is kind of replicating what is in nature. Hmm. So, yeah, so we can learn a lot from nature. And part of that is that holistic thinking. So all of these different organisms play a part in that ecosystem. So it's very positive to me in that we are now starting to learn from nature with the scientific methods that we had, which is a atomistic or reductionist method. And now we are learning to apply them in a more holistic sense. And it has taken us some time to reach this point, right? Mm -hmm. we, we went from industrial agriculture to organic to now fully understanding how an ecosystem is much better mm -hmm. for us than any of the things we were doing before. Mm -hmm. So it's a constant learning for us. So, well, another principle that we can take from this is that it cannot be done overnight. And um, Sri Lanka is, is a case in point where they tried to implement organic farming very quickly. And it, it led to a, a big failure of their economy their farming sector. So Sri Lanka's government imposed a ban on using any fertilizer and this kind of happened overnight while farmers were not ready for it, they were not educated and it was a total failure. You mentioned that they also just came out of the COVID pandemic yes. lockdown period. Yes, yeah. it, it could not be worse timing to yeah. do this. I mean, we have some amazing, amazing solutions for moving away from industrial farming, but it cannot be we stop now and we start organic or we stop now. Now it's only going to be regenerated. The ground, people, the ecosystem, everything takes it its own sweet time. Like uh, what Philip was telling, that the whole circle of the soil and everything coming back to being organic from from the depleted soil to a completely alive, nutritious soil. It takes time. Did you say up to five years or something? It could be. So that time needs to be allowed as a transition time. We cannot be transitioning in one day. Absolutely. For anything. Definitely. So that reminds me of another concept that's applied nowadays, and it's it's been in application for about uh, two decades. But mostly among the academics and researchers, and that that is the nexus approach. And we can talk about the food, water, energy nexus, where nexus means network. And the food, water, energy nexus is such that um, each of those spheres affect the others. So they're you, linked they're to each other. They're interlinked in many complex ways. So if you touch food sector, you affect the water and the energy sector also. And then similarly, if you, if you touch the 
energy sector, the fuel sector, food and water sector. But we can expand this thinking into other spheres. So there's the food, water, energy, and then the society sphere, and then the industry sphere, and so on. The, the nexus perspective and the nexus approach is a more useful way of looking at uh, all of these spheres of life. So we need to look at how any decision that we take is going to affect all three of them yep. before or, it's put into... Or more spheres. Yeah. yeah, before it's put into effect. Yes, even cultural. Because if you think about it, agricultural, you know, <laughs> culture is part of that agriculture. And so it does affect our culture in so many ways also. When you spoke about the nexus, I think it the huge, one of the biggest part that we all have to think about is Every country has a different way of doing things. Their infrastructure, what they have is different. Their landscape is different. They, the weather is different. So if someone applies something here, cannot really be applied in the same way somewhere in Japan or, or somewhere in South America. They need to create their own unique way of working, which could Im- imply that they take this approach or maybe tweak it to what works for them. Yeah, so that's where the culture aspect comes in. So what might work in Japan may not work in the UAE and vice versa. But we need to take a more holistic approach, study how we can implement this within our culture so there will be a transformation. Actually, that reminds me one great example uh, who made... When we when we met them, one of the amazing farmers in UAE, so, Mr. Humaid Al Yeah, so he said they use this great organic pesticide. I, I now I'm forgetting the name of Hila. Hila, Hila. So and it's it's great. It's like all rounded supplement that you can give to the. Uh, it's organic. It's found here, and you can give it to the plants, and it, the pests stay away, uh, including crickets and locusts and stuff like that. Now you cannot find that. Uh, let's say if you are having a farm in uh, in Sweden, I mean, and how sustainable is that to take it from here to there or get something that works in Sweden to bring it here? You should be able to work with things that's locally found. And we have a lot of history and a lot of culture to fall back on, to take the new technology, the new findings, and bring it to our own culture and make it work together. I think that's what's, what is sustainable and also regenerative. Absolutely. That's a great example of, of using locally available plants as herbs. And pesticides. So, having said that, we were also looking into modern high-tech farming that is suited to the urban environment, such as vertical farming, aquaponics, and so on. Now, how do we also apply this cultural thinking and holistic thinking into those modern techniques? Vipa, can you take us through these modern techniques? Yes. Okay, so there are a number of farming techniques currently being practiced in the world. However, some of the modern ones that do come under the umbrella of urban farming. So that means that you're farming actually within cities. These could be indoor or outdoor locations, warehouses where farming is being done. And the purpose of this is to kind of work with lesser resources like water, sometimes without soil even, and to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that come from the transportation, long-distance transportation that happens. So if these farming plants are within the city environments, 
you, you remove that cost and that burden on the environment. So to start off with, let's talk about vertical farming. Mm-hmm. So this is a practice where you might take a big warehouse and vertically stack herbs, plants, and grow them in an indoor space under artificial light. So now they've done a lot of research and come up with the exact recipe you need to make beets or to have basil that flourishes. So they know exactly how much light it needs. They know exactly how much fertilizer it needs and what combination of nutrients creates the perfect cauliflower. So they are called a blueprint for plant production units and they're very effective in terms of growing vegetables within the city space and within the city environment. Now, the thing is that some of these techniques that we will talk about are quite new. I mean, we don't know what are the consequences of eating vegetables that are grown in artificial light or UV light with controlled amount of fertilizer, nutrients, etc. So the impact on the human body and the nutrition intake is something that we will know after this has been practiced, this has been consumed after for a number of years. So that was vertical farming and we will just briefly touch some of the other methods that are also available. Mm-hmm. Some of these are also being practiced in the UAE actually. Right. So there's hydroponics as well. So this is a method of growing plants without mm. soil. Yeah. Now, at first, this might seem weird because we've not heard of it. But actually, this technique has been utilized for thousands of years. Yes. So where does the nutrient for the plant come from? Just water? Yes, through the water. Through yeah. those. So, so the, the water isn't treated with some... Yes, it's a solution form. The, the nutrients are supplied in solution form to the plants. The nutrients are mixed in the water. Mm-hmm. And this water is given to the plants through channels in a way to conserve water as well. Okay, so it's kind of sprayed or something, or what? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. So there is uh, channels where the water continuously circulates. Mm -hmm. The same water. Yes. Okay. But they're checked, they're tested at the in and out points, Mm. how much minerals are being absorbed, and then more are added to if there is a deficiency. There are methods where water is sprayed, and that's called uh, aeroponics or fogoponics, as in the water is mm. misted in a, in a fog. That would save even more water. Yes. So you cannot really grow all sort of plants with that, or, that's or like true. grains. That's I mean, true. You cannot, yeah? That's mm. true. Well, you could obviously you could modify or you could uh, breed the plants to grow with these techniques, uh, a certain strain of the plant. Maybe it's just me. It makes me a bit scared not to have soil. I feel like it's just such a part of it is and, and human uh, yeah. story. Well, one point is what we touched on earlier in that the soil is a community of organisms. And I do think that they supply things to the plant, certain nutrients that we get from those organisms, like the, the fungus or the certain bacterium, that, that they're not getting through hydroponics or aeroponics. I do feel like, you know, everything that's living has certain energy transfer and hence it gives us energy when we eat that plant or gives certain kind of energy, right? Not every plant that you eat or every seed that you eat has the same sort of nutrient. So to remove these organ these living beings, which is part of the ecosystem, 
that creates mm-hmm. the story of that plan then yeah. that's removed there's a certain part of the story there's something that's that's mm. omitted and that's definitely going to affect i mean it's not there's no proof to it there's nothing but this is my belief that that when that's removed there's certain things removed from what's supposed to be given to us that plant with mm-hmm. what it brings to us has been taken away mm. like we've said that you know we would not know the extent of what kind of damage it has it it has done but it will probably come in 10 years or 15 years or not but this is my belief like when certain things are removed like when the bees are removed from mm-hmm. the ecosystem it impacts the yeah the whole ecosystem yeah so this is another reason why now we see a increase in the sale of probiotics sourdough yeah. breads and so on that, exactly um, yeah. yeah so we have to complement the, the sterile lab. foods that now we're getting from our supermarkets and our grocery stores it's amazing how we talk about sterile all sort of the bacteria is part of our life we are made of them if that's removed there is no human body Yeah. that would that's functional so in past two three years during pandemic it's been kind of pushed into us that oh you need to wash 10 times <laughs> you need to wash your yeah. hands all the time or sanitize yeah. everything you before you touch it and so how does that affect our immune system right are we getting weaker as Absolutely, we progress yes. economically and uh, scientifically <laughs> as a society you're progressing in, in that sense but are our bodies getting weaker our bodies are exposed to less number of bacteria and then they're not able to identify what is good for me and what is mm-hmm. bad for me and in my case because i have celiac disease which mm-hmm. is an autoimmune disorder these do generally happen mm-hmm. because of that yeah where your body is thinking any wheat product is an enemy and attacking my own body for consuming that so so yes it, it, it's definitely affecting us so, and it's a huge yeah. part of our um, in to, in today's world every second person that you meet has some sort of allergy yeah. it's funny that my five year old other day says oh mama i'm allergic to eggs <laughs> randomly he's not allergic to anyone but he hears that in school to children having oh, it's allergy a cool thing. for him it's a cool thing to be allergic uh, uh, these oh, people are special they treat it special oh. no because it's such a part of our vocabulary now of our culture to be it's normal to be allergic but i do not remember that when i was growing no. up it was a unique thing if somebody is allergic to something it is right. a very it's not a everyday everybody has the same anyways going rare. back to yeah yeah Yeah. So this is the new culture. Everybody's exactly. allergic to something or the other. So I believe it's great that we have um these new technologies, but you cannot compensate for nature. You cannot mm-hmm. compensate for that organisms that makes that soil and in yeah. turn that soil is giving nutrition to the plants and, and that plants that we are eating. Yeah. Or if, if if you're not a vegetarian, if even the chicken, you cannot feed him corn or wheat and then you know that's chicken ready it has to go around eat worms and eat stones eat everything mm-hmm. that's there in the farm and then, now that's a wholesome chicken. chicken yeah but i mean you never know in that in that we have to keep our minds open yeah. to all different types of technology changes ways of doing things i mean for all we know only some types of herbs greens can be grown hydroponically aquaponically the rest is grown the way we do with soil 
And so you are still getting what you're supposed to get. Let's say the vegetables that you're getting are coming from a regenerative agriculture farm, then you're still getting a good balance of everything. And we are still able to meet the food requirements of a bigger population more efficiently. Right. So on, on the plus side, rooftops in cities could be used for agriculture. Mm-hmm. Some of the dead spaces within the, the urban locations could be turned into productive uses for agriculture. And like you said, you could reduce the carbon footprint for transportation and also it could positively impact the, the heat loss or the, the cooling loss in a building by adapting agriculture onto the buildings. And also, also that could be part of using the waste right. created in that yeah. building. Yeah. Or yes. Now thinking um, culturally, in a place like Dubai or Singapore, which is multicultural, one negative aspect of it is that we would be imposing this one type of basil on everybody, or this one type of tomato <laughs> on everybody. <laughs> would that be desirable? What do you think? As long as it's a tamami and the sweet, <laughs> sugary tomatoes. <laughs> no, the perfect not, ones. Yeah, the perfect no. ones. I think I even think so. if we if we use things like hydroponics or aquaponics or vertical farming, we can still have variety. We can still have diversity in the types of herbs, greens that we are growing. If we have been able to create a recipe for some types, we should be able to create for more types. Mm. And that is something that that will come out as we continue to explore these yeah. fields further. So that exploration is very important. So I think the jobs of the future will will see different new types of nutritionists, new types of agriculturists. Farming is high tech now, right? So it's not your grandfather's farming anymore. New types of chefs and uh, culinary experts and. And so on. Yeah, I mean, a farmer doesn't have to be farming with in a huge field. Mm-hmm. He could very well be sitting in a house or an office space in a supermarket, and that's his farm. And, and, and he's farm producing a, and providing to the supermarket. Yeah, I know my kids uh, used to farm on the computer you know, in simulation, but that could be the future of farmers sitting with a joystick Absolutely. controller using a robot to farm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we already have farmers are already using a lot of technology that is available, that is cheaply available to everyone. So some of the examples are there is this chameleon moisture sensor, which is created by a company in Australia, which allows farmers to understand the moisture level in soils. Because what generally happens is if you don't know what is the moisture level, you either irrigate too much, wasting water and causing fertilizer to run off, or too little and not giving them enough nutrition. So this way, you're making use of these resources that we have in limited supply in the correct way. So that opens up that the farming industry for more computer science majors and uh, mm. data science scientists and machine learning experts, which is already happening big way yeah i mean think about the kind of jobs and kind of i would not say jobs but professions because everyone can be their own if you think about it that could create just in farming mm-hmm. waiting to be explored there's even things like extension of the life of the produce so generally this is done with synthetic fertilizers or pesticides currently but there is this company it's called appeal and they've produced sprays made of plant matter that slow down the spoiling process 
of the food naturally. And um, this company, they've already received a $1 billion. Wow. It's a startup. They've already received that funding last year. So, so this is in demand right now. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about what we can do as people, right? I mean, agriculture is an industry and we might think that they are doing the wrong things. It's easy to blame others than take responsibility for your actions. And the thing is that about 25% of the climate change problems can be attributed to the choices that we are making every day in relation to what we eat, right? So that's huge. So it means that every action that you take will actually lead to some form of betterment for the environment. So if I were to give an example, one serving of steak produces 330 grams of CO2 versus chicken at 52 grams, which is much less. Mm. So, so it's definitely better to consume poultry compared to red meat. Yeah. And how about consuming locally produced, done, imported? Well, how do you grow meat in the city? When I say locally produced, it doesn't have to be the chicken that I'm talking about. It could be vegetables and, you know, within the country. Like, let's say, in the UAE, we have many local farms that has then grow chicken, that produces milk. So instead of getting milk or chicken or steaks that's imported, isn't it better that we eat right. Absolutely. stuff that's locally produced? Yes, it definitely. does just not, not just meat or chicken or egg or dairy. Maybe a lot of people do not have dairy, but it could very well be cucumber or tomatoes or the salads. What I mean is not to have a mango which comes from Australia all the way here. Instead, if you know it's middle of winter and we do not grow much mangoes here and not in the neighboring countries, then have things that's available around in the in the countries or you know, in the country where we're living or surrounding country? Like where the stuff is coming from, yes. to be mindful of that. Yes, uh, most definitely. But um, there are many sides to that story. On the one side, I believe that trade between countries is a very good thing to promote peace in the world. Because if countries trade with each other, they would choose not to fight with each other. Also have a relationship, yeah. Yes, and it is good for people to have that international relations and the fellowship between nations. So trade promotes all of that and, and it's good for peace. On the other side, if there is war, it can disrupt the international supply chains as we are seeing currently with the present geopolitical issues uh, happening in Ukraine and Russia. So there are those aspects. And then, as you mentioned, there's the aspect of the transportation impact on the environment. I'm not uh, saying that these are good or bad at this point. And then there's also the cultural aspect because the Australian mango tastes different than the Pakistani mango and you might have a preference for one or the other. And also and what if what if the country is an importing country like UAE? Yes. Where locally you're not able to grow as much right. as you need to feed the population. Oh, no, of course, I agree with that, you know, countries like us or uh, con country where we live in or, or Singapore, of course, yes. But 
what I mean is what is available locally, make that part of your primary diet. So if there is, you, you know, you're going to go out to have buy some chicken or whatever, instead of going and buying something that's coming from Ukraine or anyway, you know, there's a lot of importers, yes, but primarily go to the local stand and buy what's freshly available. It's, it's Absolutely. more healthy. Wherever possible, yes. I mean, I don't, possible, think, yes. I don't think we're going to get strawberries that are locally grown and taste as amazing as they do in, I don't know, Greece or some other country. But um, it's possible for at least some of it. Yeah. And continuing the conversation where we were talking about the actions that we can take so generally, I mean, veganism is really popular right now, but what a lot of studies really show is that it's not really that different compared to if you had a vegetarian diet or even if you had a Mediterranean diet where there is a lot of fish, poultry, red meat is something that's consumed maybe once a month. But there are options for people when it comes to the diet types that they choose. And I think the hard and fast rules that generally people apply are not the best. You know, just like we spoke about when it comes to organic farming, it's not just the only way to do it. Same way you can apply it to veganism as well, in that you don't have to be 100% vegan all the time. You can be partially, you can have some days where you consume more vegetarian or more Mediterranean, things like that. So I think, I think every action that we take is important. And, and the thing is, there is good news in this. Oh, I love good news. Yeah, right? I, I don't think, know about others. Right? <laughs> I think good news is always good and it's always welcome. I think moderation in everything is the path. So remember in old days, I mean, you know, meat is not an everyday thing. Any part of the world that was the case, at least that's what I hear from my husband who is from Denmark and they are heavily reliant on non-vegetarian or meat mm -hmm. of any sorts. But it was more of a weekend thing where they will have a steak or whatever. So I feel it's about moderation. Right now, people who have is having excess of everything people don't have they just don't have it should be moderation in everything is well, the only way what if you're an eskimo and you know you're yeah, eating whatever. meat all exactly. the time if so then a lettuce a lettuce is a luxury for for you if you're living in the in the poles <laughs> so what is moderation to an eskimo person so what, that's where uh, localization happens, what, what is available in nature. So you cannot go being a, oh, now I'm a vegan, but I live in Iceland. <laughs> What's available to you is what you're helping the nature with. Mm -hmm. what, is, that's how what if I identify as an Eskimo and I, I live? You want to be a... <laughs> oh, it's a liberal world. You, See, you uh, can, <laughs> if you are an Eskimo and want to be a vegan, by all means, yes. If that, that vegetables are available to you, yes. But is it is the question. But the thing is that, the thing is, you can be an Eskimo in the Antarctica or, I don't know, the well, other, in, uh, in the pole. In the pole. In the poles. However, to be an Eskimo in the UAE <laughs> is not really going to help your health <laughs> that much because from, from the data, we can see that we are consuming more much more than our diet needs or our bodies need or even doctors recommend. So you're saying when in Rome, do as the Romans? Yes, <laughs> When exactly. in Rome, don't be an Eskimo? That's what works. Yes, because then you are consuming but, what is locally available. 
But I identify as an Eskimo. It's hurting my Eskimo sentimentality. So what Vibha is saying or what I'm saying is if you feel like an Eskimo and if things are available as an Eskimo diet, go ahead and have it. But do not have excess of anything. It's not going to help your body. It doesn't help the environment. Obviously, you can anything. You can do it if you want to do it. I mean, people do it. But then people do all sorts of people things. People do all sorts of things. <laughs> Do you think like a steak should be a, a, a one kg steak? But the, there is one kg steak available. I mean, there's all sort of things available. That's the trade of free world. You're allowed to do whatever you want to do. But you as a person, if you want to thrive as, as a community, as a community, as an individual, you want to perform at your optimum. There are certain rules to your body as well that one should follow you cannot just because things are available you're not absolutely and that's of anything and, and that's okay. the good news that i wanted to share i i, oh. I don't well, think now before that i just want to say that i wasn't casting any aspersions on eskimos i was just uh, <laughs> doing the devil's advocate oh we didn't think yes. so as well yes. he, he loves to be the devil's advocate <laughs> he um, loves he loves to have a debate on everything and we right. love him for that Oh. Yeah. I think that makes the conversation so much more fun. Yeah. All yeah. right. The good news now. Yeah. The good news is that most studies have shown that the consumption of meat was much higher within the Western countries because it's more accessible for people. It's easily available. In developing countries, it's probably more expensive and that's why less affordable to people. However, even though the meat consumption has been increasing, the type of meat that is being consumed is different. So the consumption of red meat, like beef and pork, has reduced by 19% per capita. And this has been substituted by consuming more poultry. So there is a good thing in that people are changing their habits. People are realizing that consuming poultry is better. And, and that is eventually better for the environment and for your own health as well. So people are making these choices based on health recommendations to switch from red meat to white meat. Absolutely. I do think also in the past few years, vegetarianism and veganism has really caught up in, in the Western world, which obviously in, in a lot of Asian countries it was a thing. But it's really loud. If you go on social media, you see these things really vegan recipes and what's the new in thing in uh, in the vegan world those things is all over so it almost seems like they are diversifying from meat fr- intensive meat intensive diet to to more well-rounded yeah yeah diet with vegetables yeah. and I know, in, uh, like, I remember, you know, if you go to a restaurant like t- 10, 15, 20 years, 15, 16 years ago in Denmark, they, there's not many options if you're a vegetarian. Absolutely. And now there are so many options, so many. You, and you do not have to go to a very high-end restaurant. You can just go to a local cafe and you will find a sandwich or find something in the main dish and appetizer you will find options i think the biggest transformation is that kfc is planning to come out with the vegan meal i don't trust (laughs) i don't don't trust the kfc oh so that brings up two new questions one is the vegan meat and then the other one is the lab-grown meat question those two i do not have much 
understanding of lab-grown meat. I think that's a very, very recent development. And I don't know, maybe Philip, so you would be a person to say that. Thumbs up thumbs down? No, nowhere. I don't have a thumbs up or a thumbs up. When I see it and when I consume it, I can give you an opinion about it. But when it comes to vegan meat, a complete thumbs down. I just, I mean, why? Oh, it is why. I mean, why Why a meat, vegan sausage? Uh. Why? And people do not read it. I mean, okay, so now you're vegan or vegetarian. I didn't know you were so passionate about this. This thing is like, <laughs> it's a shame because, you know, you look, you look at the label. Please, if any of you out there are eating these vegan meat or but whatever, have a look at the sodium content. Have a look at what are you eating. What are you putting heavily, into your body? It is heavily a shame. processed food. And I don't think you, you don't want might to eat as that. well eat meat, please. Goodness, it's you're so, so passionate, ladies. So I two know. thumbs down, I take it. Yes, okay. I had a personal experience I can share. So I recently ordered. I'm not going to take names or anything, but I recently, not me, but my husband ordered a plant-based ice cream, and it it was like in capital letters, plant-based ice cream. Okay, perfect. I mean, and. You know, he bought it. He had the plant-based caramel something, something ice cream in the evening, three, four scoops of it. He was sick for two days. Two days sick. He was not able to get up the way. He was having this real acidity or chest pain or whatever. It was so, so bad. Then I turned around. I looked at... <laughs> <laughs> I looked at the back. It said sodium content. 180 grams of sodium. 180. What else was there? Any uranium or? <laughs> I mean, uh, obviously, I, I was very furious at my husband. Like, how can you not read what's written behind? And then, <laughs> and just because it said plant based, he went and bought it. And he's not even like, oh, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. No, he's not. He just loves his all the stuff yeah. that he eats. But. There you go. Yeah, I mean, that goes on to show how much. And how about these plant-based in investigating we have to do? Yes. Before yeah. we consume anything these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've heard mixed reviews. There are people who do like it. It's plant-based meats, and I've heard people like yourself who do not like it. I just feel it needs to be an informed decision. Do not go and buy things just because it says, "Oh, it's plant-based." Plant-based meat burger or because it's just the cool thing to do nowadays okay don't do it just to be cool yeah well the lab-grown meats are made from living cells of animals such as cows that are grown in a in a lab environment with uh, the right appropriate nutrients so question when you say beef grown in the lab so is it a cow or is it like yes, just the meat it's like a cow cells, muscles, okay. tissue mm. cells, grown into bigger tissues, cultured in petri dishes, but in larger vessels, of course. So, um, have you had it yet? Oh, no. No, I don't think we have them in Dubai yet. So, obviously, it has to be live yeah. cells, right? I mean, because our body doesn't, it will, nothing is, tastes anything if we die, right? I mean, okay, unless it's conserved or whatever, yeah. within, in however form we conserve or res how is it conserved? Is that the word? What's, what are you trying to say? When, when you kill a chicken or a cow or oh. whatever, you, you have to preserve it in a preserve mm -hmm. it in a certain temperature and stuff to keep it fresh, right? So these things that's grown in the lab, it's live. Well, they have to be killed and stop 
from growing, mm. which we can do by just cooking them. And so that's how they are done. So they take lab-grown meats and uh, cut them into the right shapes and sizes and cooked. Is it available? It is available, but not commercially yet. I haven't checked thoroughly for if there are any commercial products yet. But uh, they are in the lab stage at this mm. point. But it is coming. So what is what is sustainable food consumption then? I mean, I feel it has to be moderation in anything mm. and everything that we eat. We can consume whatever but just to reduce or remove waste first to consume and have things that's available to us in the surrounding i don't know if that's that's the same what you you would think vibha you know how do yeah. you look at it i think that's one part of it and then there are a couple of different angles that you can look at the packaging even you can look at whether it's locally grown or whether it's being imported from other places. So there are a lot of aspects to consuming things in a sustainable fashion. And we are just scraping the surface of, of what we know in terms of the diet that we, we should have and how that's eventually going to help the farms use resources more effectively. But yeah, waste is definitely another aspect of it that we need to make more use of. Yes, so I'm looking at it from the nexus perspective. The, the food, water, energy, and waste nexus, and also transportation, geopolitics uh, nexus as well. So we definitely need to minimize waste and go towards zero waste. We need to apply circular economy in all of these industries and activities. And But we also need to promote world peace. We need to promote trade between nations. We need to promote uh, cultural interchange between nations. People traveling to other nations and trading with others is a good thing to promote. It is to promo uh, good to promote uh, exchange of foods between nations. We have to engage in the interchange of foods sustainably, applying zero waste and circular economy principles. So one of the things is how you consume food. And the other thing is how the food is available to an increasingly urban population that's, that's just growing, right? I mean, currently there's so much of waste in packaging. So that's one of the other things that food producers and retailers or wholesalers have to look into. How to reduce waste on all the food that's available. I think that's where, uh, where, where one like somebody like me always like to promote things that's locally grown because there's less waste when it comes to packaging. Well, I mean, these are all very interesting topics and it, we would need more shows um, <laughs> more to talk about shows. these. Absolutely. Because um, we need to look at all sides of the packaging aspects. We need to protect the food. Also, we need to minimize the packaging so that it's not harmful for the environment. And then in a situation such as when you're on an airplane, what does local mean if you're flying over the ocean doesn't mean where you started from or where you're landing. So there are those very interesting qu questions to grapple with, and I think that would be better that would for, a, for a future many. show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, packaging itself can be a whole show and not just one. Mm -hmm. It could be one, two, three shows. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. Yeah, yeah, there are so many interesting questions and paradoxes that we could deal with. So definitely we should come back to that. Okay, and that 
wraps up this episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, remember to apply zero waste and circular economy principles. Remember that these are a journey, not just a destination. So you beat agriculture, food consumption, food availability, how you grow it, consume it, needs to be circular, and minimal waste. And eventually we will reach zero waste. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. And it's goodbye from myself, Philip, and Vibha. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.